Are you redeemed? Well, are you? You probably haven't been asked that for a while, if you've ever been asked it at all. It's the kind of question that the street preacher or the personal evangelist 30 or 40 or 50 years ago might have asked people. I, I think I remember that language when I was a kid. Might seem weird to us, but, but I think it's true. Some of you are nodding and smiling. Even weirder than the, the question itself is the reality that there was a time when most of the people who were asked the question would have known what it meant. They'd have known roughly what we were talking about. They would have known that it had something to do with the Christian gospel. I think if I went down Main Street tomorrow, stopped a random collection of people and asked them, are you redeemed? They might think I was talking about Tesco points or about air miles. They wouldn't perhaps know that we were talking anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're thinking about this evening, the fact that we're redeemed and the difference that it makes. We're, we're well into this series now, recommissioned, and this series comes in the form of a Bible overview. So we're not reading one book of the Bible, we're, we're going to move through the Bible in, I think it's around about 11 sermons. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to discover from God's Word who we are, particularly who we are collectively as the church of Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of the people of God? And so far, we have learned that we are See, people who know their story. So in a culture that's increasingly lost the script, that has no script to live by, we're people who know our story. And it's the story of, of God's word. In a culture that's trashing the planet, we're called to be a people who care for creation. Some of us wonder about that. It's a, it's a command of scripture, and as far as I know, it's never been revoked. It's part of our calling. In a world that's lost its way, where people who are to be a, a blessing to the nations as we walk in the ways of the Lord and, and model Christ to them. This evening, we're going to continue our journey through the Bible and see that we are people who are redeemed for redemptive living. So imagine for a moment that we could teleport our Bangor Street preacher back in time drop him into ancient Israel and give him the same question to ask the people he encounters there. And he asks them, are you redeemed? Pretty much everyone without missing a beat says, yeah, of course I am. Now, if our street preacher followed up and asked some question to probe that, how do you know you're redeemed? What do you mean by that? They, they don't talk in the kind of language that we might about a, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He talks instead about an act of God in history. That moment when God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, that, that moment that we call the Exodus. Let me show you a couple of passages quickly in the book of Exodus where we see that God is a redeemer and that we have been redeemed. Flick with me to chapter 6, that passage we read a moment ago. Chapter 6, page 62. Sorry, 
Is it Exodus 5? I think it is Exodus 5. Moses has been to see Pharaoh. Moses has asked him to let the people go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting the people go. And actually, for even daring to ask, I'm going to make the people's lives much harder. I'm going to teach you not to come and be a union in front of me, negotiating a better deal for your workers. Don't do that. You're slaves. Stay where you are. It's a bad moment. But look at what God says then to reassure his people through Moses. Verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll free you for being slaves and I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. There we have it. God says that he's going to be a redeemer. Flick over to chapter 15. If you know the story of the Exodus by now, time has passed. Egypt has suffered the plagues. Moses has led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea towards the promised land. And God's people celebrate their escape by singing a song. Look at the lyrics there in verse 13. In your unfailing love, will you lead the people you have redeemed? So, in chapter 5, we saw that he was going to redeem his people. And now chapter 13, they're praising him because he has redeemed them. God is a redeemer and his people have been redeemed. What's this all about? And why is it important to us? To answer that question, I want to think with you about three things this evening. I want to think with you about the redeemer, about the exodus, and about the cross. First of all, the Redeemer. What is a Redeemer? The English word from its Latin roots means to buy something or someone back. In Israel, it, it had a range of meanings, and it certainly included that buying back idea, but the idea of redemption, uh, if you read across the Old Testament, has, has a variety of meanings. Let let me give you three examples of what a redeemer might do in Israel. He might bring a a murderer to justice. So if someone is murdered, it it was the duty of another member of the family to redeem the situation, I think is the language we might use, to bring the murderer to justice. So that's a first. A a redeemer might help a, a family member out of debt or slavery. If I fall on hard times and I have to sell either my land or my kids, my family redeemer comes and he buys back the land and set free my, my, my kids to save us from our destitution. A third thing that a redeemer might do, he might act to keep a brother's name alive. So if a man died without having a son, someone who would inherit his name and his property, then there was a strong moral obligation on his brother or some other male relative to take the widow into his own family and to have a son by her. That, that son would inherit the family name and the property of the deceased brother. If you're thinking at any point of the story of Ruth and Boaz, then you're on the right track. That, that was a kinsman redeemer, if you remember. So think about it for a second. If these 
are the kinds of things that a redeemer does, and God chooses to call himself a redeemer, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm as committed to you as the most closely connected member of your family. He accepts a, a kinsman relationship with us. He's the ultimate kinship carer, if you know that language. I love how Chris Wright puts it. He said, God is prepared to do whatever it takes and to pay whatever it costs in order to protect, defend, and deliberate uh, to deliver his people. Folks, God is our redeemer. He's a champion who does whatever it takes. But what does this redemption actually look like? That brings us to our second focus, the exodus. Whenever we read about the exodus in the book of Exodus, we see that God's people were enslaved in at least four different ways. And we see too how God rescues them from each dimension of their slavery. God's people are in political bondage. Do you, do you remember how this played out? At the end of the book of Genesis, 70 people, the, the, the family of Jacob, go down into Egypt so that they might survive a famine. By the time we get to the, the beginning of the book of Exodus, they're, they're an immigrant ethnic minority under a, a large imperial state. You can hear echoes in the, the Exodus story of, of any ethnic minority that's come under oppression wherever they are. There's plenty of that going on in the world today, suffering suspicion and oppression of a host state. So whenever God acted, he confronted the power of the empire and his redemption operated on a political stage. The second, and possibly I think the sharpest pain that God's people experienced was their economic oppression. They, they were being exploited as slave labor in a land that had known for the economic benefits of the host nation. For God to redeem them economically, it would take more than just getting rid of slavery. They, they could be set free from their slavery but still be in poverty. He'd need to give them a land of their own, a place where they could prosper. And of course, that's just what he did. So the Exodus has a strong economic dimension. Don't miss to the, the social dimension of their enslavement. Think of what was, life was like for these Hebrew people in their community and their families. Do you remember the story? The Egyptians are making plans to kill their youngest sons. We're talking about destroying family life with a, a state-sponsored suicide, denying people the ultimate human right, the right to life. So when God redeems his people, he'll want to create a culture where every human being has dignity and has rights. The rights that denied them in Egypt, restored to them. And by the way, that's exactly what God's law does. When we read in the second half of Exodus about the law, 
It's to, to restore to dignity these people who'd been so oppressed. God invites his people into a new kind of life. And there's a, a fourth dimension to their spirit, to their bondage. It's a spiritual dimension. It's interesting. The Hebrew word abodah in, in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, is used to describe two very different realities. Israel's service as a slave to Pharaoh on the one hand, but Israel's worship of God on the other. The problem isn't just that God's people are, are slaves to Pharaoh. The problem is that they're slaves to the wrong master. They needed to be transferred from slavery to one master to service to another. God didn't want to just set his people free from slavery to Pharaoh to become nobodies and nothing drifting around in the world without a, a root or an anchor. No, he wanted to bring them to him to be his servants. So God re redeems his people from their life of, of service to Pharaoh so that they can live under his loving rule. Israel's bondage in Egypt had political, economic, social, and spiritual dimension. And God's redemption of, of these slaves dealt with everything that enslaved them. We've talked about the Redeemer. We've talked about the Exodus. It's all very interesting. It sounds a bit like a, an academic lecture from the Bible. What's it got to do with us? Well, we come now to the cross. When the New Testament writers talk about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in the cross, they want us to think of it as a new exodus. Turn with me to that second passage we read this evening. Luke chapter 9, page 1040. Luke's telling us at this point about a moment when Jesus went up onto the mountain to pray. As he's praying, his appearance changes. It's known as the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, the two biggest figures in the history of God's people Israel, they appear with Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us a whole lot, but they tell us, he tells us that they're talking with Jesus. And your, your question as an informed reader is to say, what are they talking about? I'd love to know. And Luke tells us. Verse 31. They spoke with him about his departure, which he was about to bring into fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, that might just be the most disappointing translation in the whole of Scripture. There are many translations in Scripture that, that hide some good stuff. It's not that this is entirely wrong. It's just that it's so small. Have a look at the footnote. That word departure, when you read that, you're thinking, you know, what are they talking about here? Jesus, have you got your bags packed? You're, you're heading for Jerusalem. Do you have everything you need for the length of your stay? 
The Greek word translated here as departure is the word exodus. Do you see it now? He's going to Jerusalem. He's the new but greater Moses who's about to achieve another but far greater and ultimate exodus. Do you see now why all of this matters? Jesus Christ is the Redeemer who does whatever it takes, who pays whatever it's going to cost, who gives his own life. And in that moment when he dies on the cross, that's the supreme act of redemption. He delivers us from sin, from judgment, from death, from everything that enslaves us. Jesus Christ saves us in all the ways that we need to be saved. We are people who've been redeemed. Folks, our full title for this evening, if you saw it when it was on the slide, were people who've been redeemed for redemptive living. I want to spend the last five minutes thinking with you about what difference our redemption ought to make in our lives. Just two things I'm going to say quickly about this. Redeemed people celebrate and redeemed people imitate. We've already noticed with that quick look at Exodus chapter 15 a few moments ago, what does Moses do when he's led the people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, towards the Promised Land. Uh, I probably didn't get this. When I was a kid and I I read the story, I I just moved through that chapter. It didn't interest me that much. They got the tambourines out, and they partied on the other side of the Red Sea because they'd been saved. They celebrated. Miriam led them in song. Tell me this. Do you ever take a moment to thank the Lord for saving you. Have you got a tambourine? Get one. I'm I'm kidding, I I don't have a tambourine. But but do do you have any joy? Any joy in your salvation? If not, there's something wrong. If not the way we think of our life with God, something's gone missing. In Scripture, those who have been saved celebrate. I think it's one of the great dangers for those of us who've known Jesus for many years that we lose the joy of our salvation. There's a great line in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I read it a couple of years ago and it stuck with me. I didn't even realize it comes in two volumes. The first volume is the story of Christian and then there's a second volume that tells the story of his wife, Christiana. On her way to the the celestial city, she meets a fellow pilgrim called Mercy, and in Bunyan's words, she helps her to fall in love with her own salvation. I love that. She helps her to fall in love with her own salvation. We need to find ways to help each other, to have a great, great joy in our salvation. It seems to me that the best way that we are doing that at present is in our, in our singing. 
Some of our, our songs, they help us to do that. I love that song we sang just before I preached. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Let's, let's sing of our salvation. Let's celebrate it. I, I saw somebody doing this recently. If you've ever been with me in Introduction to Discipleship Groups, you'll know that I make the group do something right at the start. I make them introduce themselves to each other. So we go round, we answer four questions. What's your name? What's your occupation? Um, where are you from? Um, how long have you been around Hamilton Road? I always get things going. I always believe if you're going to ask people to do it, do it yourself. But then people are watching me to say, which way is he going to go around this circle? Do I, is it my turn or, or can I wait till the others have had a go? So just recently, I did my thing, got it going. And the, the person beside me in a group, I handed to the next person, the very first person to speak. And they introduced themselves and they said, I'm Ashley. And I became a Christian on the 28th of November because the first thing she wanted to do was to share with the group the joy that she'd found in her salvation. It was amazing. Friends, let's, let's do that. I, I don't really know how we do that. If we've, if we've lost that, I, I'm not going to whip you about that. I'm maybe asking a question. What would that look like for you? to recover the joy of your salvation. Redeemed people celebrate. But redeemed people don't just celebrate their redemption, they imitate their Redeemer God. Because they're the people of the Redeemer God, they love to see other people, all people, experience redemption in all the ways that they possibly could. I, I'm just realizing there's something I haven't written in my sermon here, but you know the way different people get moved by different things? You know, when you watch a movie, one person's sitting there unmoved and another one's a blubbering wreck. I think it's redemption that gets me. When I see a life that was, was broken and f wrecked, somehow put back together again and restored. It, it just moves me. Friends, we, we, we ought to want to see people restored, people set free from their sin, set free from their spiritual darkness and brought into light and life. But, but we don't stop there. We long to see people restored in every possible way. We long to see people set free from all forms of slavery and oppression, released from their debts, from their all forms of economic suffering. We long to see generosity reign. Folks, people who are Bible-believing Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, are big gospel people. We really do believe that God wants to, to save us in all the ways that a person can be saved. I hope you can see that, that his redeeming work, I hope that you can see that this redeeming work that I'm talking about that reaches into all of life is possible only because of Jesus' death on the cross. Chris Wright warns us, it's a mistake to think that while our evangelism 
must be centered on the cross, as it has to be, of course, that our social engagement and other forms of practical mission have some other theological foundation or justification. He goes on, why is the cross important across the whole field of our Christian mission? Because all forms of mission in the name of Christ are confronting the powers of evil and the kingdom of Satan with all their dismal effects on human life and wider creation. One last paragraph from Wright. He asks how any Christian can challenge the darkness at work in our world. He asks, by what authority can we do so? With what power are we competent to engage with the power of evil? On what basis dare we challenge the chains of Satan in word and deed, in people's spiritual, moral, and physical, and social lives, only through the power of the cross. Only in the cross is there forgiveness, justification, and cleansing for guilty sinners. Only in the cross stands the defeat of evil powers. Only in the cross is there release from the fear of death and its ultimate destruction. Only in the cross are even the most intractable of enemies reconciled. Only in the cross will we finally witness the healing of all creation. Let me finish. I was at an event uh, a few years ago, I think it was maybe during the, the first lockdown or around about that time. It was hosted by a Christian charity that works with young people throughout Northern Ireland. And at one point, the presenter shared a haunting statistic. He said that in the last two years, 600 people in Northern Ireland have taken their own life. 600 people. And then he shared a soul-destroying government target. The government would like to see those figures reduced by 10% over the next two years. Do you see what we're saying? Friends, we live in a society where only 540 people taking their own lives is regarded as success. Our world is enslaved and it's flawed and it's broken. Our world is in a big, big mess and it needs a big, big gospel telling of a big, big savior. Our world needs to hear of its redeemer. The people of Bangor need to meet Jesus Christ, the one who says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine.